Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you again this week to talk about a topic that I think will be of value to those of you uh, that own your own portfolios. I'm fairly confident in that. And to those of you that are passive investors and want to learn more about underwriting. And that is underwriting temptations. Those little teases that are buried in the underwrite that when you've got a deal that's oh so close to working and it tempts you to just nudge the underwrite just a little bit. Now, there are lots and lots of temptations in underwriting. I'm gonna talk about four of them and what we at Mara Polling do to make sure we don't fall victim to those temptations. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Thank you to everyone that participated in last week's webinar on state of the multifamily market for 2022. Those of you that were registered, regardless of whether you attended or not, should have received your email with a copy of the recording and the slide deck that we went through. For all of you that are listening now but weren't registered, you'll have access to that information uh, in about a week on the Learning Center. So if you would like to get advanced copies of that kind of content for future webinars, Go to the Learning Center at marapolling.com, the webinar page, and register for all the upcoming webinars. If you're able to attend, fantastic. If you're not able to attend, understood. Uh, regardless of whether you attend or not, as a registrant, you'll get a copy of those materials and the recording, and you'll get that in advance of it being made public. That's all at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Okay, so let's talk about underwriting. <clears throat> Pardon me. So underwriting is the process of forecasting, budgeting, estimating what's going to happen at the property after I purchase it. When I'm getting ready to purchase a 200-unit property for $25 million, I do an underwrite. And if you're getting ready to buy a condominium for $300,000, you should be doing an underwrite as well. There are lots and lots of assumptions that go into an underwrite. How much am I gonna be able to move rents? What kind of improvements am I gonna make? What sort of occupancy am I gonna have? How much is my interest rate gonna be? What kind of loan terms am I gonna have? And on and on and on. And how you manage those inputs has everything to do with how the underwrite is gonna uh, perform in terms of telling you you're able to do the deal at the number you're shooting for, or you're actually over the not to exceed and you should just turn around and walk away. But there's lots of temptations in there, temptations to just move the input just a little bit. Oh, let me, what if I could do this? What would happen? And that is the proverbial slippery slope, right? Which you could end up talking yourself into a deal that now makes sense because of the underwrite, 
but really doesn't make sense because with um, reasonable inputs, the underwrite said, don't do it. Now, if you're a passive investor and you're making investments with a sponsor like Mara Polling, uh, you should have access to or be able to query your sponsor about, so how do you do these underwrites? What kind of inputs do you use? What are some of the assumptions that you make? If you're doing this for your own portfolio, you should be looking at all the assumptions you make and having some kind of philosophy about it. If you're going to be aggressive about it, all right, then that's your philosophy. If you're going to be kind of middle of the road, hey, I think this is the average of what everybody else is doing. I think I'll be average. If you're going to be conservative, which is where we tend to play, then you're going to underwrite with even tighter inputs. But there are four areas in particular that I think are interesting to look at where the temptation uh, can be really strong because they can have a significant impact on the performance of the asset. The first of those is the exit cap or the exit price assumption. So I buy a $300,000 condominium today. If I assume that I'm going to be able to exit in five years at $375,000, that tells me one thing about my performance and how much I might be willing to pay today. If on the other hand, I could exit at $450,000 in five years, wow, that's a much higher degree of performance. Maybe I'll pay more than $300,000 for it today if I could have that kind of exit. The challenge with exit caps is just this. Nobody knows what the cap rate's going to be, meaning nobody knows what the marketplace is going to look like when it comes time to exit an asset. In a commercial asset like the type that Mara Poling would be investing in, we like to make assumptions that cap rates, meaning the price per dollar of NOI, that that's going to move unfavorably to us from where we are. Meaning that if today you can buy a dollar of NOI for $25, we might make the forecast that when it comes time to sell, we're only going to get $22 for that or $20 for that dollar of NOI. What that means is I'm maybe buying at a four cap and I'm forecasting that I'm going to exit at a five cap. And that's about the range that we would use, 100 basis points. So why is this important? Well, the reason it's important is this, is when you manipulate that number, exit cap in particular has a very large amount of leverage, a lot of power in the underwrite in terms of telling you how high the return can go. A low cap rate, meaning a high price per dollar of NOI, can make a average deal look really, really strong. Now, does it matter if a deal looks okay or if it looks strong? Well, maybe, maybe not, but this is where it actually comes into play. And that is the underwrite for us is a tool primarily to help us understand what the target price should be in terms of what we would offer for the asset and what our not to exceed number is. Meaning as the price goes up, where do I draw the line and say, I'm just not gonna pay more than that. If I'm using a artificially low exit cap, meaning I'm purchasing it for a five, uh, pardon me, for a four cap, and I'm forecasting that I'm gonna exit for a four cap, then 
I may convince myself that I can pay $26 million for an asset that maybe is only worth 25. So we like to put in 100 basis points or so, maybe a little more, maybe less on occasion, but around that number of unfavorable movement, which, as I said, would take that $25 per dollar of NOI price and move it down to $20 or so per dollar of NOI. That's a pretty big difference. But it's also a conservative change. And what that does, as we've said many times before, is it can protect us in the short term. It also creates opportunities for us to overachieve. So if we're underwriting an exit at a five cap, and when we do exit, we're actually able to exit at a four and three quarters. So we're, we're able to get something like $23, $23.5 per dollar of NOI, well, then we're going to overperform what we had underwritten. And we've got a greater likelihood of that happening when we're using conservative variables. The next is the baseline market rent movement. So I'm not talking about how much market rents are right now and what the delta is between the current rent and the market how fast I'm going to go get that, how quickly it's going to take me to get to market. Nor am I talking about the amount of incremental rent we can get for doing an improvement. We install uh, new appliances and do flooring and uh, do some other updates to the kitchen. Can I get $100 for that? That's not this number. This is the baseline level of rent growth, which we will typically underwrite at around 3% for most of the markets that we're in. I can make that three and a half. I could make it 4%. I could make it 5%. And over the last year or two, you could make a very strong argument for a 5% or greater annual rent movement because the market's been moving at least that much, if not more, uh, certainly more than that in the markets that we've been active in. The problem with that is that's essentially a compounding number. Right. So if rents are a thousand dollars and they move three percent, they go to a thousand and thirty. And the next year they go to a thousand and sixty one, sixty two and so on. But if it's a five percent, it goes to a thousand and fifty and then it goes to, you know, eleven sixty or something like that. And then so on. And the next thing you know, after three or four years, not a terribly long period of time, my underwrite says I'm getting $75 to $100 a month more in rent per unit than I'm actually getting. So this is an area to be very cautious about. Again, we like 3%. We think that's a reasonable number for the types of markets that we're invested in. And you should keep that in mind for the markets you're investing in, whether it be passively or actively. If you're investing in a quieter market, uh, maybe a market in the Northeast somewhere. Um, uh, sometimes even some of the coastal markets can look like this. You might want to be more modest in terms of that rent movement or look to see if your sponsor is being modest. On the other hand, if you're investing in one of the hot go-go markets, right, whatever the latest it market is, Maybe someone could underwrite a higher number, but you'd only want to underwrite that for a year or two. And in my experience, 
you're better off simply writing a modest number over a long period of time and then overachieve. None of this means you're not going to try and move rents as much as you can every year in the same way that when it comes time to sell, you're going to try and sell for the best price you can, i.e. the lowest uh, cap rate. But underwriting is about protecting yourself in terms of making decisions. The next would be project capital. So I mentioned before adding appliances and doing some flooring and improvements to the kitchen and those sorts of things. If when I put my initial budget together, I say, I'm going to spend $6,000 on each unit. And then the property, the underwrite's just not really where I want it. I really feel like I need to get a little more out of it. I might be tempted to go in and say, well, maybe we only, it'll only be about 5,000. I bet you we could do it for $5,000. And that might actually be the number that I end up being able to use when I actually do the investments. Again, wanting to be conservative, I'd rather budget a little more, have some money left over and potentially be in a position where I could maybe then do some other things because of the money I have, as opposed to underwriting right at, or maybe even a little under what the real number is gonna be, and then find myself in a position where I don't have the capital to make all the improvements and if I can't make all the improvements, I can't move the rents. And if I don't move the rents, I don't get the returns, which means I've overpaid for this particular asset. And then the final one is reserves, the oops money, if you will. Now, this is different than reserves like that a lender would hold. So a lender is going to hold reserves for insurance and taxes. They may hold some capital improvement reserves or some uh, essentially capital maintenance kinds of reserve dollars. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the what happens if, and then fill in the blank. The obviously best example is what happens if there's a global pandemic and the entire economy shuts down for six months or more? What am I going to do? Well, it's a good idea to have some cash laying around so that you've got flexibility to one, do what makes sense to manage the property well, and two, to be in a position to potentially take advantage of any opportunities that might be present. Well, that cash has to come from somewhere. <clears throat> Pardon me. We keep at Mara Polling a certain amount of cash from every investment just sitting in the bank. We don't ever do anything with it. We don't want to do anything with it. We want it to sit there and be unused. It's our swan money, our sleep well at night money. We want to be able to manage anything that might come up, not worry about where we're going to get the cash to take care of something. And if that pulls our return back a little bit, which it will because it's capital that's essentially not invested anywhere, that's okay. That will ultimately mean that I'm going to pay a lower price for an asset than someone that's not underwriting a healthy reserve like that. That's okay. If they want to make that investment and take that risk on, that's fine. That's not our business model. Our business model is to be more conservative. If you're a investor and you're looking to make some swing for the fences kind of investments, you might be working with a sponsor that doesn't have much, if any, in the way of reserves. 
Or if you're building your own portfolio and are looking to be more aggressive and are willing to take on the risks of the volatility that you might experience if you don't have this cash, then you don't need to underwrite for that. If you're looking, though, to make a good, secure, stable, multifamily investment, then either yourself for your own underwrite or the underwrites of the sponsors that you look at should be setting aside a reasonable amount of money for reserves. Now, what is reasonable? I don't think it's 20%, right? If you, if you raised a million dollars, you don't need to keep $200,000 sitting aside. I also think you need to have more than $2,000 sitting aside. We generally think something in the neighborhood of around 5% is a pretty reasonable number to keep sitting idle. And on occasion, that number might dip a little bit. It might increase a little bit, but something in that general range. So if I'm looking at a deal, this hypothetical 200-unit property I mentioned, and I think it's worth $25 million, and I think that's the case because of my underwrite with all the appropriate, reasonable, conservative inputs that I've put into it. But the seller is pushing back saying, well, I'm going to go to market soon and I'm pretty confident I can get 26. I, I need you to come up a little bit or else I'm just going to go to market. Well, if 25 is my target price and when I get in there and look and uh, do my not to exceed analysis, maybe I come up with 25.5. That's just the be all end all, not going to pay more than that. I need to guard against the temptation to say, well, you know, I don't need to do that much of a buffer on cap rates. I, I bet I could pull back from 100 basis points to 75. And we can probably move the rents more like 3.5% than 3% a year. And I bet you it'll cost us, it won't cost us that much per unit. We can probably save $500 a unit on capital. And, you know, 3% reserves is fine. We don't need 5%. All those little things, which, by the way, no one of those may actually be an incorrect input. It's very possible that you actually would perform in line with what I just described. And that might get me to a place where 26 million works fine. And I can say yes to the deal and get excited about it. But what I've done is I've narrowed the tolerance in terms of what performance we can have that will make the property work, we've increased the risk that we have downside events, that we have unfavorable uh, outcomes. And it comes at a price. And the price is, no, we're not sleeping well at night. Uh, you know, And that's certainly not where we want to be. Now, underwriting to guard against those items also comes at a cost. And that is the cutting room floor. So if we look at 50 properties and we underwrite all of them and we end up with maybe five that look like they'll work that we go into negotiations on and we get one that pops out the other side, there's probably more than five that would have been good deals. There might be seven or eight or even 10 that would have been good deals. But because we underwrote conservatively, they ended up on the cutting room floor. Some of those we probably could have purchased paid what the seller want, and they would have performed just fine. And everybody would have been really happy. But there would have been risk associated with that. Uh, 
And that's not worth it in our estimation in terms of uh, the kind of portfolio we want to build. So if you're looking to make good, solid, long-term investments, which is ultimately where we think real estate performs the best, multifamily in particular, then giving up a little bit uh, and having fewer deals to choose from is a small price to pay for that, not only the long-term performance, but the risk mitigation uh, and the comfort and confidence that you can have from underwriting in a manner in which you safeguard against these four particular temptations. So for those of you that do your own underwriting, hopefully that's of some value to you. If you're working with a sponsor, uh, these might be some things you'd be interested in chatting with them about. If you work with us, uh, uh, I'd encourage you to take a look at the most recent acquisitions that we've made, uh, participate in some of the upcoming live, <clears throat> pardon me, member sessions. And, uh, and ask away, and we'll be happy to talk about all of these items and how we have underwritten specific transactions. I hope you have a great week. Please join me next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Marapol. <laughs>